Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open with me to Psalm 139, Psalm 139. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you there somewhere around you in the, one of the racks uh, underneath the seat in front of you uh, or behind you if you can reach it, but you probably can't. So reach for the one in front of you. It's a little black uh, books there. And I think you'll find this on page 521 of those uh, church Bibles, Psalm 139. I want to talk this morning on the subject of our all-knowing, ever-present God our all-knowing, ever-present God. To one degree or another, we all know what it's like to have things about ourselves that we like to keep secret. Uh, For a few people, that goes as far as living a whole uh, secret life. You've maybe, hopefully nobody here uh, today, but maybe you've heard stories about those kinds of things where, you know, somebody has uh, almost another whole personality and another whole life that they live in secret that that nobody close to them uh, knows about. But to a lesser extent, which would be common for many of the rest of us, there may be something about our own past or our family history that we don't want people to know about. There might be some habit of ours that we hope no one ever finds out about. Uh, There might be things that we think to ourselves or say privately that we surely don't want others to know about. And at the very least, most of us at one time or another have put up a good front, so to speak, or kept up appearances. We, we, know, what, we know what those kinds of things mean, even, even making a good impression. It means there's things about us that might make a bad impression, right? But we wanna keep those Concealed. The point is, this is common to man to know uh, what that's like for there to be things about us that we keep secret, perhaps because we are afraid if those were known, that might impact a relationship negatively. So I won't get that job if they know the whole story about me or uh, these other people in in my uh, workplace or church circles or whatever wouldn't respect me if they knew everything about me. Or uh, maybe if if he really knew me, he wouldn't love me anymore. We're afraid uh, at times that the whole truth about us might impact relationships negatively. Well, what we see in Psalm 139 is that the things that we can keep hidden from everybody else we cannot keep hidden from God. He's all-knowing, all he's ever-present, and he's good. He's good, and he loves us anyway. So let's read about that now, Psalm 139. And uh, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand and honor the reading of God's word. And the words... But beyond the screen, beginning of verse 1 out of the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? 
or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you, as always, for your living and true word, because we need life and we need truth. We tend, if left to ourselves, towards spiritual decay and death, and toward error and folly. And apart from your word that you speak into our lives, that is exactly where we will go. So we thank you, Lord, for what this is to us. And we pray, as always, that you would minister it to each one as we have need. You know all of the hearts in this room today, you know all of the circumstances of life people are encountering. You know exactly how this word needs to be heard and understood and then applied. And so, Lord, would you do that work as only you could do it by your spirit. And so speak, oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant to your people for your glory. Move me out of the way and use my voice as an instrument for your voice to be heard in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, for for most people who have read Psalms very much, Psalm 139 makes the short list of favorites, probably. I mean, it it tends to be uh, a really precious one. There's language and imagery here that's warm and personal and comforting. And uh, we find in it both elements of hymn and lament. As we've been going through this series on the Psalms, we've, we've uh, examined different categories of Psalms and some that are just pure praise, those are hymns, and some that are laments where uh, 
where the psalmist is crying out to God in some way. This sort of contains elements of both because it's front loaded with such exaltation of God, um, but transitions sharply to lament about the wicked enemies of David and of God. And it tells us some beautiful and affirming things about God, um, about me, and about you, and about their relationship between God and us. It tells us things about God, about us, and the relationship between God and us. And so I just want to observe uh, here today that there are uh, three sort of big ideas about God here. This, is, this psalm is loaded, by the way, I should say. I am uh, ambitiously endeavoring to preach the whole thing in one fell swoop, which is don't try this at home. You know, it's one of these, this is risky. There's so much here, um, but we're going we're gonna to try to tackle it all. But number one, we'll see that God knows everything about his children and loves them anyway. Number two, we'll see that God is holy and that we should desire for his righteousness to be established. And number three, that God is gracious and it's he who empowers us to live a godly life. Well, number one, we see that God knows everything about his children and loves them anyway. And that's really a way of summing up verses one through 18, if you were gonna try to put all of those together. And this is the passage that we think of, by the way, when we think of Psalm 139. We think of verses 1 through 18, verse 14 in particular. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the one we most associate with Psalm 139. But the, those 18 verses can be divided essentially into three stanzas, if you want to call them that, of six verses each. So verses 1 through 6, then 7 through 12, and then 13 through 18, almost three stanzas that communicate this big idea that God knows everything about us and loves us anyway. But in stanza number one there, verses one through six, we get the message that you can't conceal anything about yourself from God. And you know, I'll say even before I unpack that, we know that's true. We know that's true and yet we act as if we can anyway. Right? We would know from Sunday school class a long, long time ago when we were in second grade or something that God knows everything and you can't keep any secrets from him. But we live as if we can anyway. You can't conceal anything about yourself from God. Verses one through six really speak to the omniscience of God. If you're, if you're talking about how the attributes of God are revealed in, in uh, Psalm 139, verses one through six really draw out the omniscience of God. That is that he's all-knowing. He knows my habits and patterns. We saw there, he knows when I sit down and when I rise up. Verse three, he searches out my path and my lying down. He's acquainted with all my ways. I'm pretty sure there's nobody else who knows all my ways. But he knows all my habits and my patterns. He knows my thoughts, it says in the second part of verse two there. You discern my thoughts from afar. He doesn't really need to sort of look, see the look on our face and go, hmm, I think you're up to something. What's on your mind? You look like something's bothering you. No, he, he discerns our thoughts from afar. He knows precisely what they are. He knows everything 
I've said and everything I'm going to say, even before a word is on my tongue, when my tongue is locked and loaded, so to speak, getting ready to say something. He already knows what's there. And what I'm about to say, there's no such thing as mumbling under your breath. You know how, how kids do that. Well, your kids, not my kids, but you know. <laughs> but you know how, how children, children will do that, grow up in a, in a house where they, 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 they want to protest. They, they, want, they, they go, whatever it is you've ordered them to do, they'll go do it because they know they have to do it, but they just want you to know they're, they're entering a protest as they go. And so they mumble under their breath. You're not supposed to hear what they said, just that they said something. Right? So, so there is never a moment where God doesn't know what you murmured or what you thought about mum, murmuring or what you're about to murmur. He knows everything I've said and everything I'm going to say. As I mentioned already, uh, we're quite accustomed to concealing things about ourselves from other people. And in some ways, that's just social courtesy right? We're grateful to know that we have the skill of not saying everything. Everybody doesn't need to know all of our thoughts. Some of them are not necessary or edifying. And sometimes, even before a word is on your tongue, just leave it right there. It doesn't even need to make it to your tongue, right? There are some things that just, we're just better, all better off that way. But as I mentioned too before, we, we know the feeling of not wanting people to know everything about us because if they did, they might not think as highly of us as they did before. Well, God knows all of those things. God knows all of those things. That he, he knows all of the adulterous thoughts and intentions. I say adulterous, that is a description that the Bible uses of his people who follow after other loves, you know, who set their affection on other things, other interests, other gods even, who are wed to him metaphorically and yet wander and are unfaithful in their love and their allegiance. See, God knows about the secret affairs. They're not secret to him. He knows all those other things we love, that we're pursuing, that we're thinking about pursuing, talking about pursuing. All of that he knows, and he loves us anyway. I can't conceal the real me from him. We also see in stanza two here that you can't hide yourself from him. So I can't conceal anything about myself from him, but I also can't hide myself even physically. And this speaks to the omnipresence of God in verse, verses seven through 12 here. We have the omniscience of God in the first stanza, the omnipresence of God in the second stanza, that he's always present everywhere. He says, if I, if I ascend into heaven, that is, if I go to the highest heights, if I go down to the lowest depths, if I were to go from one end of the earth to the other, there's, there's nowhere I can go to escape him. In fact, he's there already. 
This is a bit of a, a crude analogy, I suppose, but I always think of in association with this kind of thing. For those of you who, who uh, grew up watching uh, the Looney Tunes cartoons and saw Pepe Le Pew, who uh, pursued this uh, little cat that he thought was a skunk. If you remember, that was always the plot line. And no matter where she ran, he was already there. He never did figure out how he got there. But, but there was nowhere she could run where Pepe was not already there. Now, like I said, that analogy breaks down pretty quickly. Uh, he's, no, he, he's no good comparison to God. But the, but the point is, not only does he know where you are, he is there. He's already there. You know, I think also when I, when I think of this, of, you know, a, a, a toddler right at that potty training age who goes into the corner and kind of starts squatting, you know, pardon the, again, the uh, very human metaphors here. But the, but the point is, there's no secret. Like you're right there in the room with him. You know exactly what his thoughts and intentions are. You discern them from afar. <laughs> and so we're, we're, we're sort of on that level, uh, you, you know, relationally. We're, we're just, we can't go anywhere and escape his presence. He's already there. And the verses 11 and 12 say, even if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day because darkness is as light with you. And in most cases, darkness makes for a good hiding place. In fact, it's no mistake that most of the uh, evil and sin that people want to engage in, uh, they do at night in dark places right? I mean, that's no, that's no secret. I mean, that's no surprise or whatever. Normally, darkness makes for a gut hiding place because we can't see in the dark, but darkness is the same as light for God, for God which is kind of hard to fathom perhaps, but many of you have seen images or video uh, clips of night vision cameras, goggles, rifle scopes, and that kind of thing. You've probably seen images uh, from that kind of apparatus. And among other things, they're used in military and law enforcement. And, and some of us may have been introduced to that technology during uh, the desert storm, uh, first desert storm, I suppose, the first Gulf War back in 1991, when we saw broadcast on cable news uh, video footage of combat, uh, some that was being televised live, but others that was released by the military. And they showed different images of of combat scenes, some of it from aircraft and that kind of thing that were uh, you know, dropping bombs, smart bombs on places or attacking otherwise. And some of that footage showed nighttime attacks of helicopters where, where the enemy soldiers thought they were hiding. They're, they're, it's dark. <laughs> and they're hiding behind something. But the pilot of that aircraft can see them plainly because they've got night vision uh, goggles or whatever uh, lenses they're looking through. 
the darkness is as light to them. And in a much more complete and perfect way, uh, darkness is as light to God. There, there is no, we can't hide under the covers anywhere. God is there and he sees. Even those who will flee from him, and this has been true of believers, even ministers, who just run from God, who will literally go to the other side of the country somewhere, thinking if they can leave, and if they can leave everything of their life behind, they can ch- change their phone number, their address, maybe even their name. They just get out of reach of everybody in their life who would call them back to accountability. And God is already there in California or wherever it is they plan to end up. There's nothing we can ever conceal about ourselves, nothing we can do to escape him. And then the third stanza says it's because he created us. You can't can't conceal anything about yourself and you can't escape from him or hide from him because he's the one who created you. He put all the parts together. He knows exactly how you function. A few of you may know in in some ways the, the best way to learn something is to actually build it. Now you can't, there are lots of things you can't learn by building it. But if you were going to learn, uh, for example, how to um, repair computers or how to repair an automobile, there'd be no better way to know than to actually try to put one together. Because you have to understand how all the parts function in order to build it. And then when something goes wrong, you know exactly what it is. Or when something goes right, you know exactly why that is too. Well, God knows all about us, not only because he's omniscient and omnipresent, but because he's our creator. He, it says there in uh, uh, verses 13 and following, before I was born... Before I was born, I was being knitted together and woven together by God. He fashioned me just the way he wanted. So he knows how I operate, so to speak. And of course, the verse we give the most attention to, as I mentioned already, is verse 14. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And the emphasis is usually on wonderfully. Right? This is, this is the devotion we expect out of Psalm 139. I'm wonderfully made. And we often uh, use that to mean I'm exactly who God made me to be, so I should rejoice about that. So, for example, uh, I'm short, but I'm wonderful because, uh, because God made me that way. You know, it would be that sort of thing. That, that's, that's the message often that we're deriving here, but that's really a secondary point of the verse because the, a, a masterful, a masterpiece of art Uh, inspires praise of the artist, not of the work itself, right? The Sistine Chapel inspires awe. Uh, I've never been, but I would imagine it it, it inspires awe. It it is awe-striking, breathtaking. Uh, And yet, somebody painted it there. It is it, it, it is worth taking in in its own right. 
but it's going to point back to the skillfulness of the creator, uh, not of the created thing itself. And so the fact that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made means God is the object of the fear and wonder. That, that, that what we, we see that is wonderful and awesome in, in humanity at all, and it is fascinating when the more we learn about things like DNA that, that contain information, it's a mind-boggling fact that the, how intricately woven we are and the fact that DNA strands are really literally woven together. But it inspires praise of God that, 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 that our fear, our, our, our awe and reverence, the wonder um, is, is directed at him. He's the object of it because of his skillful craftsmanship. And so it's fitting that verse 14 says that because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, I praise you. You see that in verse 14? I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Not that I marvel so much in myself or obsess about myself, but that I praise him. Because not only does his creation inspire fear and awe and wonder of him, but part of the way he created us to be is full of fear and wonder of him. He created us for his glory as creatures to uh, worship and praise his name. So, so all of that says in verse 118 that God knows everything about his children and he loves them anyway. The second sort of big idea about God is that God is holy and we should desire for his righteousness to be established. Of all the verses in Psalm 139 that might be embroidered on a throw pillow somewhere in your house, or printed on uh, your journal cover or something like that, I can guarantee you it is not verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Did it strike you as, as I was reading the psalm and all of those things you formed my inward parts uh, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and all of these things. And then, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. I mean, where did that come from? Is that, does it strike you in that way? Because that sort of messes up your devotional, doesn't it? <laughs> You're thinking, I, I was reading uh, just about how special I am and, and out of nowhere. Where did the wicked come from? It, it, it just, at first, it doesn't seem to fit what we thought the message was there. But it really even goes beyond that, I think. It's not just that it seems not to fit the context of the psalm. By the way, I'm going to suggest to you it does fit. Uh, we just need the right context, okay? So that's why I thought it'd be worth spending a little time not stopping at verse 18 today. Uh, but actually cover in 19 through 22 as well. We need the right context 
to see how it fits, but it's not just that it doesn't fit the context. We're kind of left wondering, how does this even fit in the life of a Christian? This kind of prayer, or does it fit? Is it okay for us to pray this way? In general, how do we regard Psalms like this? And so I I wanna use this little passage uh, in, a, in a fairly brief way this morning um, to touch on this aspect of the Psalms. There are others like this that, are, that, that uh, speak to this kind of thing at more length um, that I, I don't think will be included in the series as one that's specifically this way. But they're called imprecatory Psalms because they include a word of imprecation or sort of calling down a curse upon somebody. They're called imprecatory and what do we do? What does the Christian do with imprecatory psalms? And so I'm, I'm going to say sort of succinctly, in summary, number one, uh, that we should not pray prayers of retribution against our personal enemies, okay? So, that, so this does not give you permission to pray against, you know, the Democrats or whatever, or... Uh, for the destruction, you know. Some of you, that wasn't in my notes, but I know some of y'all need to know that. So, but like for instance, you know, that this this auto mechanic cheated me. He charged me money for something he didn't even do, and now it's broken again, and he won't fix it. He cheated me, and oh Lord, go get him! You know, I, I'm calling in air support. He's, yeah, he's wicked. So we don't, this does not give us permission uh, to pray that kind of prayer of retribution against our personal enemies. Jesus said, pray for your enemies and love those who spitefully hurt you or accuse you. So we've got we to gotta do something to sort of reconcile those two things. We, we, we should not pray prayers of personal retribution against our enemies, uh, but we ought to pray for God's righteousness to prevail and for his justice to be executed, okay? So we, we've, uh, those are at least two uh, overarching principles that we've got to sort of marry here. So let's highlight a few other principles that may help us uh, think through such things and make sense of why is this even here in the Bible? Because I'll mention, by the way, there are passages from the imprecatory Psalms that are quoted in the New Testament. So it's not like they're completely spoken from a, a human and sinful point of view that nobody should have ever said those things. Um, in fact, there are passages or phrases from Psalm 69, I believe it is, that are put into the mouth of Jesus. That what David said in the Psalm, the New Testament tells us Christ was saying himself. So, so it's inspired, it's scripture, it's... Uh, valid. We've just got to uh, make sense of how all this fit together. So, he, so here's a few things perhaps that help, and this is not exhaustive. Uh, you can do the exhaustive thing um, as, a, as a matter of personal study. But first of all, we want to just consider the fact David is king, and he's speaking against enemies of the kingdom, uh, not against personal enemies. Enemies of the kingdom, by the way, that he has made some effort to make peace with, if, we, if you follow the whole story of that time and even other Psalms. 
These are enemies of the kingdom. And, and the sort of related to that is David's kingdom points to and is fulfilled by Christ's kingdom. David even himself is sort of a type of Christ. And his kingdom is a type of Christ's kingdom that's fulfilled there. It's pointing to something uh, greater that is to be accomplished in Jesus. But does that make sense even just on a sort of the, the abstract level? And Jesus tells us his kingdom is not of this world, right? One of the, one of the stumbling blocks for uh, those who crucified him was they were expecting an earthly kingdom. They were expecting him as Messiah to set up political and military rule um, on this earth, to sit literally on uh, a throne there. And he, he established a kingdom not of this world. And so from that, we know that in places like Ephesians chapter six, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against spiritual powers, principalities and powers and so forth. Okay, so the, the David's speaking uh, against enemies of the kingdom, which is fulfilled in Christ's kingdom. Our enemies are not flesh and blood in the kingdom of Christ. The third thing I would mention here that just helps frame this subject is that God is not moody, but he is holy. Okay, God is not moody, but he is holy. The reason I say God is not moody is because you and I are. And so we, we would get a little uh, upset by the mechanic who ripped us off. Somebody else who cheated us or whatever. Somebody who were just... Lord, he's got an irreversibly, irreparably bad attitude. Just take him out. You know, we're, we're, we're flighty and easily changed and that kind of thing emotionally. And God is not that way, but he is holy. There, there, there won't be a time when he has a bad day, like he's got road rage or something, and just, and just says, ah, I'm done with you, zap. But there will be a final judgment on sin and sinners. This is a major part of the message of the Old and New Testament. It just becomes increasingly an unpopular part of the message. People don't like to talk about very much, but this is uh, inseparably linked to the gospel. That God ultimately will save and he will judge. That's part of the story. Uh, so much so that every time we pray, thy kingdom come, that part of what we're praying is essentially imprecatory. Because when his kingdom comes, judgment will come with it. And we're supposed to pray for that, right? We're supposed to pray for that. We are supposed to rejoice that God triumphs and that his righteousness prevails. That's supposed to be part of what we delight in and even prayed for. And then the final thing I'll mention there, again, for us to sort of have a New Testament perspective looking back on things like this, we don't have to seek vengeance because it will either be, it will either turn out um, that that offense that we want vengeance toward or against or whatever, that that offense was either 
paid for on the cross. It was punished on the cross that Jesus took on for himself. Or for us, rather, on himself for us. Or it'll be paid for in the final judgment. Does that make sense to you? We don't have to seek vengeance. The reason we don't have to even pray for it right now is because either that has been paid for on the cross or it will be in the final judgment. God's already got that worked out. Now, again, that's a, that's a huge brainful by itself, um, but it's here in the Psalm. And it's here for a reason. And part of the reason is big idea number three is that God is gracious and it's he that empowers us to live a godly life. There's, a, in a sense, the whole Psalm moves us to verses 23 and 24, which says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. See, he has just said, O God, slay the wicked. I hate those who hate you. Your enemies who take your name in vain, all of those things are with him. And then he says, Oh Lord, search me and know me. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because he already knows there's nothing about him that God does not know. Stated how completely he despises the enemies of God. But now, immediately realizes you know, there's a real possibility, even likelihood. Maybe he knows even the certainty that there are grievous ways in me. Lord, search me and show me what they are, and you lead me in the way everlasting. So this is exactly where this ought to take us. So you following that? That, that if I reflect on the fact that, that God is all-knowing, that he knows everything about me, that he's all present so that every adulterous thing I think and do, he already, he's there witnessing it. And that I know he hates evil and will ultimately bring judgment upon sin and sinners outside of Christ. It ought to drive me to that place. Oh Lord, search me and know me. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So three quick points of application as we conclude here. Trying to sort of put all of that together. Because honestly, as, as out of place as, as verses 19 through 22 may at first seem, I think it's actually helpful in putting the psalm into its proper focus. That it's not mostly about you and me and how wonderful we are. It's, it's about God and how indescribably awesome he is. And that fact makes his love for me so indescribably wonderful. But here are three points of application. Examine your heart in, in light of the fact that God knows exactly what's there. 
Examine your heart. I mean, knowing that God, God knows exactly what's there, what, what would you find upon your own examination to be honest with, to not be um, dismissive of, well, God, you know, sometimes people say, well, God knows my heart. As if that's good news. right? Uh, but by itself, that is not good news. Now there is, you know, the, the Bible does say that God looks on the heart and not on the outward appearance, uh, such that our relationship to him is a matter of the heart, not a matter of complying with rules, performing religious rituals and so forth, religious exercises. But uh, the fact that he's concerned with the heart doesn't mean that, he, that his knowing my heart is a good thing. Uh, he knows what's on my heart and therefore how needy I am of a savior. And so even when we say things like, I love you, Lord, he knows the extent to which that's true. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we say it and mean it. We mean it as deeply as we can mean it. But sometimes though, if we're, if we're honest and open, we may find ourselves even questioning that. Almost like Jesus questioning Peter three times after his resurrection, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? because we know there's something actually deficient even in that, but God knows. And so examine your heart. Number two, I'll quote here um, a, a, a man named Bella Edwards. It was actually quoted by uh, Spurgeon. So this is somebody m- most of us wouldn't know of, but here's one of the applications, one of the things, actions, responses that sought to drive us to is cease to have or feel any complacency with the wicked or any sympathy with their evil ways. Cease to have or feel any complacency with the wicked or any sympathy with their evil ways. The more our culture is just saturated with vileness and, and, and just wickedness of all sorts, the, the more normal it seems and the more we sort of assimilate that into our uh, lives in part as believers. And, and what, the, what this stark, abrupt, shocking word in verses 19 through 22 communicates to us is that we ought not to have any complacency about the wicked or sympathy in that way. And then number three, lean on God's grace. Ask him to reveal the sin in your heart that you can't see. You've done an examination. If you, if you, if you sort of follow through with point number one there, examine your own heart. But lean into God's grace and ask him to reveal sin you can't see clearly enough by yourself and to lead you in paths of righteousness. He knows everything about his children and loves them anyway. 
But the footnote on, footnote on that is not everybody is a child of God. Uh, that language is, is misused in our culture. There's a sense in which you could perhaps say uh, as just human beings created in his image, we're children of him. But that's not the way he uses, the Bible uses the term as far as those who are part of his family, adopted as his children. He knows his children and loves them anyway. He knows those who are not his children and there awaits for them a judgment unless they repent and receive the grace that's been provided for them. That's the God we rejoice in, whom we praise, and that we urge people, we urge people be reconciled to. That you don't have to continue to cover yourself in darkness and to flee to the uttermost parts of the world as if you can get away but to lean into the grace yourself and receive all that he has for you. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, you know how much of a brain full this really is for us. There is, there's uh, so much here, so much that we could be moved by, so much more that could be said, and maybe even too much this morning to even digest mentally. Lord, would you make sense of all of it for us? Would you just cause us in our minds and hearts to retain those uh, words, phrases, verses, ideas that really need to linger inside of us for you to continue to minister uh, to us by your spirit. We delight ourselves in you. Wonderful are your works. And we know that quite well. Thank you, Lord, for making us your very own and for redefining the life we have because you've made us joint heirs with Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.